We have performed pediatric heart transplants for years after the declaration of brain death in donors. To this point, those who die of cardiovascular complications have not been considered as donors. How are advances in this area forcing us to reconsider the prospect of a heart transplant after cardiocirculatory death? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery and Practicing General Surgeon. And our guest is Dr. Mark Busek, Director of Pediatric Cardiovascular Services at Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital in Hollywood, Florida. Dr. Busek is the lead author of research published in the New England Journal of Medicine on three cases of pediatric heart transplantation after cardiocirculatory death. Welcome, Dr. Busek. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Busek, could you define for us the difference between death as defined by brain death and death as defined by cardiocirculatory death? As you may know, the typical organ donation process as it exists today in most circumstances requires that testing be done on a potential donor to establish the fact that there are no higher brain functions. And that includes things like breathing and thinking and responding appropriately so the patient is uh, unresponsive and, and shows no signs of higher brain function and no interfering factors that, that would be uh, causing it. So it's a, an injury. Now, does that mean that you then cannot take a, a donor who has a cardiocirculatory death up to this point? It's been done in adults and in some pediatric patients but has been generally restricted to the donation of liver or kidneys, occasionally now some lungs. And we were sort of moving into the area where the consideration of the heart itself as a, a potential uh, organ for donation following what you and I would think of as physiologic death, where the heart stops beating ultimately. Well, as I understand it, there's only one previously documented case of a heart transplant performed after that type of death. Could you tell us a little bit about that case and, and the history, the pertinent history? Well, the history goes way back. Actually, the very first heart transplant that was ever done, as you probably recall, back in the 60s with Christian Barnard in uh, South Africa, that donor actually was allowed to die what we call cardiocirculatory or physiologic death. The heart stopped beating. And then after the heart stops beating, then the patient is declared dead the way you and I do on a daily basis. And then they proceed with a process of organ procurement despite the fact that the heart has stopped beating. And I think that, you know, the fundamental concept is that the individual, as we all are, is, is a component of of all of our organs, and they need to function together synchronously for us to be an intact individual. What happens when there is cardiocirculatory death is that these individuals have suffered enough damage that they are not able to maintain normal physiology. And generally, it means that they're not able to breathe. They require a ventilator or something to stay alive. So that if you withdraw life support, a ventilator, for example, then they are unable to breathe adequately and they develop a hypoxia. After a period of time, that hypoxia starts to interfere with cardiac function and usually over a period of minutes, maybe as long as 20 to 30 minutes, 
the heart will stop, and death is declared at that point. Now, why is this an issue, cardiocirculatory death versus brain death in terms of donors? Well, I, I think that there's, there's two issues that have come out of this, that it's new, uh, and so that relatively new. It's somewhat back to the future since the first heart transplant was done this way. And actually, a, num a number were done this way in the 60s before the legal definition of brain death was established. This was how they were done. There just were not very many. And the, the concern is that the, the heart is perhaps the, the most vulnerable organ to ischemic injury, or so the theory had been. So that when there's brain death, obviously the donor still has circulation. The heart is being perfused. There's oxygen. And at the time of organ donation, then the heart is felt to be in reasonably good shape to undergo the process of transplantation. When there's cardiocirculatory death, the heart has suffered by being in a body that is no longer physiologically capable of functioning. And so there is that hypoxic ischemic injury to the heart. And that has led to the concerns that, well, maybe these hearts will not be able to work adequately in the donor. So that's the, probably the, the first concern. The second concern, which the ethicists, I think, have tried to raise, is if an individual dies from their heart stopping, how is it possible that that heart could then support another individual? And how do you respond to both of those issues? Well, we had some experience in pediatrics in particular of organ donation following brain death in children that had sustained significant hypoxic ischemic injury, such as children who die from sudden infant death syndrome. And we had learned over the years that those children are able to donate and the heart works as well as a heart that had not had that kind of ischemic injury. So it seemed like there was much more reserve in the heart than we had given it credit for. And that addresses the first issue. So we were not just flying off on our own. This, this really seemed to be based on experience over a number of years that the heart was able to cope with that. The second issue, I think, gets into a more of a cultural domain where you and I and, and many in the culture tend to think of the heart as the place where the love resides and perhaps where the soul is. And there's a lot of other spiritual aspects that we locate to the anatomic structure of the heart, and whether they belong there or not, I don't know. And so I think the concern is that if the heart stops, then that means that it's stopped and it's unable to beat in somebody else. If it could beat in somebody else, then why couldn't it beat in that same person? Why'd the person die? I think that's the logic that's followed. And it gets a little bit complicated when you throw in these sort of cultural visions of what the heart represents. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and our guest is Dr. Mark Busek, Director of Pediatric Cardiovascular Services at Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital in Hollywood, Florida. We're discussing pediatric heart transplantation after cardiocirculatory death. Dr. Busek, why is transplantation with respect to a child different than an adult. It's not in many respects. There are some different demands. Obviously, for a child, we expect that the heart transplant is going to provide a lifelong relative cure for their cardiac problem, whereas in adults, we don't have such a great expectation. Do they have an increased risk of dying, a ch an infant or a child, versus an adult? The, yes, and I think that's one of the reasons that we were 
push to forge into this area, perhaps ahead of our adult colleagues, and that is that infants, in particular children under a year of age, have about a 20 to 25 percent risk of dying while awaiting a donor organ for heart transplantation. The biggest issue is that there has been a sort of a limitation of donors, and these children tend not to be stable, though the children that are awaiting heart transplant, uh, when we reach the point where we realize that there is no other way for this child to survive, they tend to be more critically ill, and we don't have the artificial hearts and the left ventricular assist devices and things like that that are of appropriate size in children that would allow us to sustain an individual whose heart has failed the way that you can in adults. So there's really a, a more urgent, uh, a greater urgency to identifying an appropriate donor within weeks of when we become aware of the fact that this child's not going to live without a transplant. So how would the modification of the dead donor rule with respect to the cardiocirculatory death affect these children and infants waiting for a heart? Well, it should hopefully make donor organs much more available. You may or may not know, but parents of children are, are tremendously in support of organ donation. All of the surveys have indicated 80% or more in favor of organ donation, and that makes sense. You know, when you have children, you're investing in the future, and you want things to work out when you're faced with the terrible news that you're going to lose a child. Parents still want something good to come of it. And unfortunately, in, in many situations, children do not reach the classic criteria of brain death, and those families are unable to consider organ donation at this time. So there are a lot of potential donors. It's very common these days to withdraw life support of a severely injured child in an intensive care unit, and the child dies, and you know the family has requested no resuscitation, and they're not able to donate organs. What this potential would bring up is that the option of organ donation would be possible for those families, and that's something that they want. They want to feel that some, that some component of their child is living on, and it's helping another family so that they don't have to face the terrible loss that, that they're facing. Isn't the definition legally of death in this situation being brain dead? Well, it's not really a brain dead. It's what you and I for years have used as the definition of death, and I think most people in society recognize as death when their loved one or their grandparent or someone who they may be at the bedside ceases to breathe and the physician examines the patient and says, I cannot detect a heartbeat, there's no sign of life, there's no breathing, this patient is dead. But is that considered now not adequate? Because I know certainly that was the way many years ago, no pulse, no spontaneous respirations, etc. But is it required now that you do neurologic functions before you withdraw care? No, the neurologic requirements are for the definition of brain death, which is a concept that was developed in the late 60s to define that state of absence of higher cortical function, which then was the equivalent of lack of life, despite the fact that the organs may be working. And I don't think that this process violates the dead donor rule at all, because in fact, these individuals have died, and the families have requested or in the case of adult, the individual may have requested that no resuscitation be performed on them. What if someone asks you and they say, well, you're taking a heart from a child that had a cardiocirculatory death, and you're able to put it in another child and restart it. So therefore, since you could restart it, maybe should you have pursued that donor in terms of trying to save their life more? 
Well, I think that that's, that's where the confusion sets in, but I think it's only confusing if you don't realize the, the process of how this occurs. This is a, a child who suffered a significant injury, one that's felt to be incompatible with life by the primary physicians caring for the child, by the family, frequently by consulting neurologists, but yet the child does not reach the standard criteria of brain death. So the decision is made to withdraw life support, and this is a decision that's done in concert with the family and the physicians. And the expectation is that if the child is able to maintain their circulation, their signs of life without artificial help, then we would continue to support the child. If, however, the child is not able to sustain himself, then that child is allowed to die, and the family's request do not resuscitate. They don't want resuscitative efforts. They don't want an artificial heart used if we had such a thing for a young child. They don't want a ventilator used. They want the child to be able to live on their own if they're able to, and if they're not able to, they want them to die with dignity. Are there a lot of differences uh, in terms of the hospital bylaws comparing how they deal with this? No, there really isn't, and it's become more of a broadly accepted policy that donation after cardiocircuitory death is an accepted pathway to organ donation in the case of liver or kidney, and as I said earlier, even for lungs. But the idea that the heart could be also be used has caused some uncertainty, I think, in the community. The standards toward cardiocircuitory death and the pathway to organ donation are now incorporated, and, and most hospital bylaws are required to have a pathway or a process in place that makes that a possibility, in fact. Are there any centers that would not, at this point, harvest a child with a cardiocirculatory death? There probably are centers that would not do it at this time because they're uncomfortable with the process. There's been very few done. You know, we only had done three cases, and they all worked very well, and all the, receive, the children who received the organs are still alive to this day, as long as three years later. But I think that there is still some uncomfortableness and uncertainty about whether this is okay in the concept of the dead donor rule, how can the heart start again in another individual, et cetera, et cetera. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Mark Busek. We've been discussing pediatric heart transplantation after cardiocirculatory death. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM157. And thank you for listening.